Welcome to The Cultured Podcast, a weekly conversation hosted by me, Michelle Corey, that breaks down the barriers surrounding art, theater, travel, and more to serve a digestible dose of culture for all. Today we have a fascinating episode about art biennials. And if you don't know what that is, then you've come to the right place because we're going to be getting into what a biennial is. And the person walking us through that today is none other than Tammy Katz Freiman. She is someone I've actually known my entire life, but she is a big time independent curator of contemporary art. She's an art historian and she's an art critic. She's based in Miami, Florida, but she is from Israel. So she's a phenomenal personality, a really interesting woman, and she also curated the Israel Pavilion at the Venice Biennial. So we're going to be talking about what that was like, what a curator's role in biennials are, and a little bit about the actual pavilion that she helped to curate, which was called Sun Standstill by Gal Weinstein, and has received massive acclaim since debuting at the Venice Biennial. So before we jump into that, let's talk a little bit about what's inspiring me this week. And this week, it's actually something that one of our crew members sent in for consideration. Noel, a cultured crew member, uh, sent me an article and I was stunned by it. It's an article that is in the New York Times and it's about romantic friendship love. So it's all about the idea that friendships can be some of the greatest romances in our lives. And I love the idea of pouring yourself so purely, so wholly, and so unconditionally into a platonic friendship that it becomes one of the most long-lasting experiences of love in your life and one of the most powerful transformative experiences in your life. We talk a lot about sexual intimacy in this society, almost too much so, that we forget that our friendships are some of the purest and most beautiful relationships that we have, and we forget to treasure those people often. Well, I experience that all the time. I talk a lot about my closest friends on this show because they're people who have helped shape my reality. And my best friend Masha and I, I believe, have one of those relationships. She is like a sister. She's like my blood relative. And she's one of the people I've loved the most in my life and who's loved me most unconditionally in my life. And That's a beautiful feeling to have those kinds of connections with people that you choose rather than are born into. And sometimes we find people who we choose, who are our friends, who become closer to us, who get to know us even more deeply than family. I find it really beautiful. I'm going to post a link to this article in the show notes so that you can experience it. It's beautifully written, and it's also just a really beautiful tale of two people who love each other wholly and unconditionally without the barriers that intimacy, sexual intimacy, can sometimes present. So I'd love to hear your story. So if you've ever experienced or have a relationship that is the epitome of what I've just talked about, this non-intimate romance, I'd love to hear about it. And I'd love to hear how it's helped shape you and mold you into the person that you are. Without further ado, we now talk to Tammy Katz-Freiman about art biennials and what it's like to curate contemporary art. (music) 
Hello, Tommy. Thank you for being a part of the Cultured Podcast today. Welcome. Um, let's, Thank you. Let's start by, why don't you tell us a little bit about what you do? Well, I'm independent curator, so I'm based in Miami. I divide my time between writing and curating exhibitions for the last seven years in Miami and before another 20 years of curatorial practice. I was a chief curator at the Haifa Museum when I was living in Israel, and there I was five years. And before that, I was freelance based in Tel Aviv. And following the relocation of my husband, Muli, I'm now in Miami. I work on exhibitions both for local artists in the U.S. and Israeli artists here and there. Speaking of which, you just came back a couple months ago from curating the Israeli pavilion at the Venice Biennial. Correct. This was the last year of work. I was engaged very uh, intensively on this project. Gal Weinstein is the name of the artist, and the Biennale opened last May. So in the last year, this is what I was concentrated on, and the results are still on. The Biennale is open since May until uh, the end of November. People can still go and see the, the project. Yeah, you guys got 11 days to go see uh, both Tammy's work and Gal's work. So before we get into the nitty-gritty of this particular exhibition, what is a biennial? Well, a biennial, uh, by its title, it's a, an exhibition that happens every two years, biennial. There are many biennales around the world. The most famous and known is the Venice Biennial. It exists since the end of the 19th century. So more than 100 years, every two years, there is an opening of the Biennale. And the Biennale itself in Venice is uh, divided to basically two units. One is the curatorial project, which is always curated by a megastar curator. And then there, are, there is the other part, which is the national pavilions that are mainly located in the Giardini in Venice, uh, but also scattered around the city. Each pavilion represents an artist from the, its country. So the pavilion is basically owned by the, by the countries. How many countries have pavilions at the Venice Biennale? I think more than 80. And is that a, just a decision that the countries make, that everyone has an opportunity to have a pavilion and it just depends on if you want to invest in the structure? Not exactly, because the Venice Biennale exists since the end of the 19th century. So it's a very interesting situation to look back in history and to realize that the floor plan of the Giardini and the floor plan of the Biennale is basically a reflection of the situation, the national situation in the beginning of the 20th century. Not all the countries has a pavilion in the Giardini. Israel, for example, has a pavilion since 1952, and Israel itself as a, as a state exists only from 1948. So imagine right. that they have, Israel was four years old and it had a pavilion. There are countries uh, that don't have a pavilion, for example, Cuba. Lately, uh, there is a number of countries that are having a, a pavilion in Venice, but not necessarily in the Giardini. As I said, it's scattered all around the city, and sometimes a country just rent a palazzo or another sort of a venue, and each two years they change the venue and they decide who is going to represent them. 
when you go to Venice during this time, does the biennial just kind of take over the city? In a way, yes, but it depends where you go. If you go to uh, the center of the city, you won't even know that there is a Biennale because the tourist attractions are taking over. But for people who know and people who are coming to Venice for the Biennale, there are maybe 20 more locations where the collateral project of the Biennale is taking part. That's so interesting. And, you know, I've never actually been to a biennial, but I'm fascinated by the concept of it because it takes a lot of investment for a city, you know, a municipality to invest in bringing this all together. Now, Venice does actually help put on the biennial. Is that correct? The city of Venice and it's the government of Italy, yes. Why do you think it benefits a city to put on an, a, a huge event like this that brings artists and art from around the world into one place? I think that the first person who initiated this idea is a genius, no doubt, because the location, the charm of this city and the, and the specific historical background of this place and the visual effect of Venice as it is, with no cars, all the canals, it's such a charming setup and it's so rooted in the history of Europe that to install a platform for contemporary art, you had to be a genius to envision the scope of this project. I used to go to Venice every two years since 1988. My so God. Whenever, whenever I'm there, I'm astonished by this idea of having this Biennale there. And you can imagine it's not an easy venue because just think about the shipment and the logistic issues of installing a show that all the crates come from the sea and into these canals. It really makes everything much more complicated. I can't imagine. And that's part of the reason that you're on the podcast today, because I want to hear about the intricacies of your role with GAL's five what? different site-specific installations. So this was your first time curating a pavilion at a biennial. Is that right? Yes, it's the first time. Wow. So talk to us a little bit about how you got the initial request and how you felt about it. Well, in each country, it's a different process of selection. So in Israel, it was an open call, and then there were four finalists, and the, the open call is for artists only, not for curators. And each artist in his or her proposal needs to include a curator. So in this case, Gal Weinstein, when he responded to the open call, he included me. He asked me if I want to participate in his project and as a curator. And I was involved in the proposal. And then when he was selected, in a way, I was selected automatically because my involvement is built in in his proposal. Wow. And you've known him since, what, 1999? Yeah, I know him for many, many years. Wow. We worked together. I, I included him in the group shows that I curated. I included, I curated some solo shows of his work in Israel. And uh, yes, I'm, I'm very much engaged in his work. So what is the dynamic between a curator and an artist in this particular kind of circumstance, which I'm sure is very unique, versus group shows or even a museum exhibition? It's very different from a group show, and that's why it was also like a very important experience in my professional life, not only because of the platform, but also because of the type of involvement that it requires, because it's a one-person show 
in a pavilion which represents a country. So when you are in Venice in, in the Giardini and you go through the pavilions, you, you see what the Germans are doing, what the British are doing, what the U.S. is doing. So it's built in the, is the political context into the representation. That was one, one, I think, one of the main contributions that I feel I was able to um, insert into the project, the way it is seen from outside of Israel, outside of the local art scene, and to contextualize his work into an international platform. So this was my main contribution. In terms of the character of the work, I think that working with an artist on a solo show, no matter where it is, if it's a museum show or if it's in in Venice, it's very different from curating a group show. Basically, in a group show, I am controlling every single element of the show and I'm putting together the artists and, and the concepts and everything as opposed to a solo show or site-specific installation, and it, as it was in Venice, it's very much a situation that you give the stage to the artist and you facilitate what he needs and you're trying to concentrate on the contextualizing of the work. And it's mainly his work, and I'm doing the fine-tuning for the best way it will be received. So in a so, sense, you're kind of like an artistic consultant. You know, it's your sounding board that that artist can, Gal can come to you and say, I'm thinking I want to put this here. I want to arrange the pieces in the space in this way. What do you think? It's not like this because the proposal is already, it includes every single element. The proposal is very specific. Gal included all the details of the three floors of the pavilion, all the site-specific pieces he he included it in the proposal, and from the moment that it was approved and we were accepted and we were announced, it was a matter of production and fundraising and installing the work. There was no, I mean, the concept and the thinking process happened before the proposal. So it's not, it's not about uh, locating uh, one piece on this wall and one piece on that wall. This is not the case. If you look at this project, basically what we did, he made a new envelope, and like an inner envelope of the building and treated every single wall and floor and every aspect of the building itself with wooden panels that were covered with artificial mold and real mold in the second floor. So it's a very much a project that has to be conceived till the last detail ahead of time. So the nine months that we had since the time we were announced, I mean, it was divided, I think, three months for planning and computerizing the work and making the entire design, and then six months to produce it in a studio in Tel Aviv then shipping the work, and then another month to install it. My God, that is not a lot of time. That's a very limited time, and it just happened to be like that because of the late uh, announcement of our selection. Oh, my goodness. I mean, you were probably eating, sleeping, and breathing that entire pavilion. Okay, so you were limited. It sounds like you were limited on budget because you had to do some fundraising. So how does funding tie into all of this? So the state of Israel is investing the main part of the of the funding. 
but it's normally not enough because it doesn't include, for example, a catalog. It doesn't include many, many aspects of the production. It mainly includes the production process. So in order to make a catalog, in order to be able to hire a PR company, in order to do other stuff, you need to fundraise. And that's what I did. And it wasn't easy. But I managed to do it. So I'm very proud of the results that we were able to accomplish it. Okay, so acting as sort of a a sounding board in, in some ways, fundraising, Tell us a little bit more about the role of the curator in a biennial like this, working with the artist. I have to present it. I am the one who mediates the work to the public. So the work is there, but to give it context, this is my part. So it's it's about writing, basically. It's about writing text in the text that the signage and the text that goes into the pavilion and the additional catalog that I was responsible for, which includes, apart from my essay, we commissioned four other essays to contribute. And so it was all joint decisions that they made with the artist because the project is very much open to interpretations and we wanted different points of view and different perspectives and different uh, disciplines to look at the work. There was psychoanalyst who wrote about psychological post-trauma aspect of the project, and there was a biblical scholar who wrote about the interpretation of the sandstone steel idea, how it was part of the Mesopotamic culture of, of the time of the Bible, and how the sun has a specific role. The whole myth of stopping stopping time, how it existed in other mythologies. So this is another aspect. And there was another writer who put more focus on the architecture element of the piece. So it's really, it's very diverse in terms of interpretation and the viewer is invited to read. And of course, in the general text that I wrote, it's more in a nutshell. Okay. And so talk to us a little bit about the function of the catalog and what a catalog is. The catalog is the book that accompanies the show. In every show, I mean, in every museum show, you have a catalog, or mostly. I used to say this is like the crutches for the viewer to face on in order to fully understand the work. Because there is something else like viewing the work and getting all the visual experience of the work, but to get to understand the layers and the meaning and the interpretations and the intentions, then you have to read about it. Oh, yeah. I mean, it, it usually enough. expands your mind tenfold to to consume that kind of interpretation. It's really amazing. That's the mission of a curator. Thank you cool. for doing that. <laughs> <laughs> it's fascinating. I mean, looking at photos of the pavilion, it's really jarring in a lot of ways. It's reminiscent of both destruction and degeneration. And, you know, I find it interesting. I was reading a couple articles and and Gal is just adamant that he doesn't think about the political context of the work. And yet the politics are birthed on their own, at least in a lot of people's perspectives in interpreting the work. So will you walk us through the pavilion itself and the different sites? specific installations. 
So you enter the pavilion. The pavilion itself is, as I said, it's from 1952. And it was built as a Bauhaus style, which was very much typical in the 40s and in the 50s in Israel from a Bauhaus architect that immigrated to Israel from Germany. So the building itself is very modern. It encapsulates the modern spirit that was very typical to the beginning of the state of Israel and the idea of the future and the promise that modernity had establishing a new identity of Israeli, a new identity of the Jewish people in Israel. And so this architecture is very symbolic in itself. So you enter this building, which is a, basically like a three-story villa. It doesn't look like an exhibition hall. It's more like a villa. Right. And you go inside and you enter an empty space. The first experience is that you entered an abandoned space, something that you, you feel that there was something there, but now it's empty. And when you look carefully at the walls, you see that they are covered with this kind of uh, mold essence that envelop you. Like, for example, the, the wall on the right, you see vaguely, you see ornament, but this ornament is covered with mold and you don't know where you are. You definitely understand that you enter something that had a history that was glorious in the past, but now it's evacuated, it's empty, and nobody is there. And you don't understand what's, what's exactly happened there. In front of you, there is a huge wall that actually, this is the wall that of 10 meters high that covers the three floors. And there you see an image. And the image is a landscape at night with the moon. And this is the core essence of the piece because it takes, the, the title is based on this wall piece, which is called Sunstand Steel. The whole project is called Sunstand Steel, and this is the moon in the Ayalon Valley. And here is my part as a curator to interpret it, because for the average viewer who is going into the space, you see a landscape. But then you see the Sunstand Steel, and you see moon over Ayalon Valley. You don't know what Ayalon Valley is. You don't know the mythology. So this image is taken from a book that was published in 1973, and it's basically a book of history that tried to connect the mythology of the Bible and archaeology artifacts. And one of the famous stories in the Bible is telling the story about Jews that left Egypt. They were 40 years in the desert. And when they entered Canaan, which is the old land of Israel, there was a famous battle. And the leader of the Israelites, Joshua Benun, needed more hours of flight in order to win the battle. So he commanded the sun to stop and... God listened to him and the sun stopped. So he was able to win the battle and to enter the land of Israel. So this idea of stopping time became the metaphor that Gal wanted to work with in the entire project. And it repeats itself. I mean, the whole idea of stopping time also exists in the whole idea of mold. Mold is time. Mold is right. the, the, the manifestation of passing time. And it exists in all levels of every single aspect of this project. So explaining this was the main part of my job <laughs> and uh, giving the audience the, the lead of uh, to connect the, the biblical story and to today's reality because, you know, it's conquering the land, conquering the land in the Bible time. And now we're talking 50 years of occupation with Palestinian land. So even if the artist denies any political aspects, the political aspect is there. 
Sure, because it connects to today, it connects to real world, and yeah, that's what's happening. A, exactly. This is a rep- representation of Israel in the Biennale. So when a, the viewer enters this space, he's entering Israel in a way. Absolutely. So in the past, too, I mean, every single work that was there has a political context, even if you deny it, there is political context to the work. That's what's so, so fascinating about art is that it has several kind of life cycles. It's as the artist is creating it, and then when it goes out, it kind of takes on a life of its own, and then it takes on a third life, which is that of whatever it becomes for the viewer. Yeah, I mean, the, the work in its own, you, you get only the visual. But if you want to better understand, and this is true for every contemporary art, it's a language, and you need somebody to mediate this language. If you want to get 100% of the world, and even to understand connotations that were not necessarily even in the mind of the artist, but it's open to interpretation, and it's open to hopefully not even one interpretation. So the, the widest it is, I think, that makes the work more, more interesting. So as a curator, you're like a translator for the work. It's very nice to to put it like this. Yeah, I agree. Uh, I think the mediation is, in a way, it's a translation process from the visual to the verbal. Yeah. For people who want to go to the Biennial, to Venice, to experience it, what are some of your other favorite pavilions that really blew you away while you were there? Well, the German pavilion won the main prize of the biennial, and it's worth seeing it. It's a performance-based installation, so if you go there where there is no performance, you're losing 80%, 90% of the piece. The performance is really amazing, and so this was one of my highlights. Uh, the, cur- the curated show is very interesting, and the curator tried to do something else. She tried to focus on the art itself, on the on the art practice, and it was interesting to look at it in today's context with, with Trump and with all the politics. It, it was kind of trying to escape the political, but it's obviously there. And there are, as I said, several collateral projects like the Prada Institute did a a very interesting group show that was the highlight of everything in Venice, to my opinion. It's called The Boat is Leaking. And of course, there was the Damien Health Two Venues show that was a blockbuster. You need at least three days in order to see the majority, not everything. Well, thank you so much, Dami. Uh, first of all, before we sign off, I just had to say that this is so crazy for me because I have known you my entire life, basically, and I didn't know you were so freaking amazing. <laughs> like, I knew you were personally amazing, but I, until you become an adult, you realize that you don't know anything about all of these adults that have seen you grow up and... I mean, I just feel really privileged to know you and call you basically family. So thank you for being on the Cultured Podcast. I appreciate it. Oh, you're welcome. You're welcome, darling. All the love in the world to Tami. I can't believe I got her on the Cultured Podcast. This is a woman who has seen me grow up since I was five years old. And I feel honored to be surrounded by such an incredible curator and artistic mind that she is. So huge thanks to her for sharing some really incredible, fascinating behind the scenes looks at what it takes to curate and put together a massive pavilion for one of these biennials. And in particular, one of the world's most 
most famous biennials, which is the Venice Biennale. All right, y'all, if you want to find Thami online, you can find her at catsfryman.com or you can find her on Instagram as Thami Katz. And as always, those links are on the show notes for this episode, which you can find at culturedpodcast.com. Our next episode is coming up on Sunday, as always. And until then, y'all, keep it classy, keep it curious, keep it cultured. Michelle Corey. Sean Powers is our producer. David Markowitz is our executive producer. The Cultured Podcast is a production of Zero Mile Media, made with love in Atlanta. You can listen to Cultured on culturedpodcast.com, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Pocket Casts, and anywhere podcasts are found. If you love what you're hearing, don't forget to rate and review the Cultured Podcast on Apple Podcasts. (laughs) 